Welcome to the Sustain UW podcast, a place for sustainability conversation, expert interviews, and news hosted by student interns from the UW-Madison Office of Sustainability. We want to know, what's up with sustainability and where should we go from here? Before we dive into today's episode, we want to remind you that the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the views of the Office of Sustainability, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Now, let's get into today's show. Hello and welcome to the Sustain UW podcast. My name is Britta and I'm here with fellow host Kylie. And today we are joined by Dr. Weslin Ashton, a professor of environmental management and sustainability at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Dr. Ashton is a sustainable systems scientist studying the intersectionality of industrial ecology, food systems, social equity, and the economy. Dr. Ashton is in town as the keynote speaker for the Sustainability Symposium, which is hosted annually by the Office of Sustainability. We are very excited to have Dr. Ashton on the episode and to hear all she has to say about her research. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ashton. Could you give us a bit of your background and how you got to the position you currently hold? I was trained as an environmental engineer, and during my studies, actually like the last semester of my undergraduate program, I was introduced to the idea of industrial ecology. And I think in environmental engineering, we are trained to deal with end-of-pipe problems, so after pollution has been generated, and industrial ecology takes the perspective of how can we design our industrial systems to eliminate pollution in the first place. And that pulled me into doing a graduate degree, and so eventually my master's and PhD in environmental science at Yale focused on industrial ecology, where I was able to integrate engineering and science with sociology and business to understand how businesses can make decisions to operate in a more cooperative way for designing and dealing with resource management issues, energy, water, as well as waste. And because of that interdisciplinarity in my PhD work, I was recruited to a faculty position at the Illinois Institute of Technology uh, in the business school, which is not where a lot of environmental science uh, folks end up. And so it's been interesting. So so I've always had this very interdisciplinary interest that's grounded in, in engineering, but layered on with business and social science. And that's where I am today. And you, you mentioned that uh, industrial ecology was your field. And that's kind of a phrase I hadn't heard before until I started researching your work, because you don't often pair like industrial and ecology. They seem like two different fields. So um, what, what, what is that field? What is industrial yeah. ecology? So industrial ecology essentially thinks about how our industrial system might be designed and operate more in the principles of a natural ecosystem. So on one hand, it's a set of tools to analyze the impacts of human activities and our industrial activities on the environment. So life cycle assessment is one of the best known tools from the field that really thinks about the whole supply chain. So everything from when we extract raw materials, through processing, through distribution, 
use and disposal. So we can assess the environmental impacts all along that supply chain. There are also other conceptual tools that are more about how we organize industry. So one of the core ideas in there is called industrial symbiosis, which looks at this inter-firm cooperation. But the overall perspective is how do we better understand the interactions between humans and the environment and design our industrial systems so that they both mimic and act in harmony with the, the natural environment. I was looking at some of your research and you looked at food systems specifically in a few papers. And I was wondering how industrial ecology applies to food systems or if it's separate. So part of my, my story is moving to Chicago in 2010. And as you can imagine, Chicago is a post-industrial facility. So in my PhD work, I had done research on the pharmaceutical manufacturing industry. And so very kind of heavy chemicals, lots of process flows, right? So heavy water use, heavy energy use, significant waste streams. So when I got to Chicago, I looked around and guess what? There are not a lot of heavy industries in a city like Chicago. So what is there? What's the manufacturing that's left in a big city? And it turned out that there's a lot of food manufacturing going on. And so I started working with some entities that were trying to think about how to make food operations more sustainable. So the same sort of principles that we might use in any industrial facility, we can do an accounting an inventory of how they're using energy, how they're using water, the waste that's being generated in order to uh, make those operations more efficient. We can also think about developing symbiotic relationships between industries, taking the waste from one industry to become an input to another industry. So that's where I started off my food systems work, really from more of this kind of like engineering operations efficiency perspective and through partnerships with my collaborators so one of the core groups that I do research with is called the Chicago Food Policy Action Council and they have a food justice perspective and they're very focused on how do we transform our food system to reflect the the values of people in society to repair past harm, and create more equitable opportunities for lower income, people of color, marginalized communities within the food system. So it's really kind of this transformative uh, approach. So I've had to adapt the, the tools and the methods. So the environmental systems analysis tools from industrial ecology can take us so far, right? It helps us to understand the operations. But I ha- have since built many more collaborations with anthropologists and political scientists to understand why our food system is the the way it is, how injustices have been perpetuated in these food systems to begin tackling and developing strategies for addressing food justice issues. And so that's uh, something that you know, I, I wasn't trained to do in, in my studies, but I have learned through collaboration with a number of both academic as well as practitioner partners. And you, you were saying how you worked in Chicago and that's a more urban uh, food system. So how do, just kind of clarify, how, do, how does an urban food system differ from, like in Wisconsin, we're pretty used to a rural um, uh, agricultural food system. So how are those two systems different? Yeah. 
So one of the big differences is scale. Right? You can imagine that in a city, we have much less land that is available for agricultural production. The second is cost. Right? So because land is scarcer, it's more limited, and there are other uses for that land, agricultural use is not the highest value use of land, which also means that the production costs in a city are much higher than they are in, in a more rural environment. You are closer to your markets. right? So, so on the other hand, there's an opportunity to build and be in relationship with the, the communities that, that you're serving because of that proximity. I think we will continue to need both rural and urban farming. So I have some, some colleagues that wrote a paper a couple of years ago that, that was called something along the lines of urban agriculture, not much food, but lots of social capital. <laughs> I think that the term they used was like oodles of, of social capital. And, and so the value of urban agriculture I think, yes, we can produce some food that can be consumed by people within cities, but it's not going to meet the full demand of a a city's population, right? We're going to need more rural agricultural production to meet the calorific needs of city dwellers. But what we can do with urban production, we can meet some calorie needs. We can meet more high-value products that can be produced in this local environment at a higher cost. We can expose more people to growing and build an appreciation for how food is grown, what can be grown, involving more people in food production systems, produce a, a high diversity of foods to meet different cultural needs. So I think there's a lot of value in urban production, but it's not going to be at the scale at at which rural food production can happen. So you mentioned the importance of connecting people with their food source and educating people on growing their own food. And do you see a disconnect, especially in urban settings where there's not readily available land to farm? And how do you manage these disconnections? Yeah. There's a huge disconnect, and there are many initiatives that are trying to educate, and, and, and I would say educate primarily in the, the school system, right? So getting kids exposed to, this is a zucchini. <laughs> right? These are the things you can do with a zucchini, right? And, and building that cultural appreciation early on, right? In many of our cities, in lower-income communities that have been disinvested, it's much easier to find a fast food uh, and many fast food options than to find groceries that have good, fresh fruit and vegetable selections. And, and so I'd say for many city dwellers, they don't know, right, well, where where do those fries come from when, when you go to McDonald's? <laughs> Who really knows? <laughs> um, and so there are organizations that are doing important work to try to build that, that knowledge and appreciation for, for what's being grown. There is an element of historic racial prejudice in our food system that has led to a disinvestment of Black-owned farms um, in the United States. There's also an element of the history of 
enslavement and black people in this country being forced to work on farms and not receiving the benefits of that labor. Uh, so there's a healing that I think needs to, to happen. And I'm just going to call out the, the work of uh, one of my collaborators, Erica Allen from the Urban Growers Collective, who speaks a lot about the need for racial healing. Uh, and some of the work that Urban Growers Collective, as well as some other organizations within the city of Chicago, such as the Windy City Harvest, are developing uh, for pharma training and apprenticeship to bring people of color back into food production and train them to, one, kind of learn how to grow, but learn the business aspects of, of growing. And they have different pathways, right? So someone might only be interested in uh, developing a community garden that can feed themselves and their neighbors. Some people are interested in you know, actually having a, a viable agricultural production business so different pathways that, that they might take, and so they provide training resources. So, so I just want to call attention to this aspect of racial healing that I think needs to be considered when we think about uh, what people know about where their food comes from and building a stronger relationship between knowing where your food is grown and how it's grown and, and what you eat. That was very well said. And you were talking about how there is sometimes like unequal access to food, especially in urban settings. And then also talked about how waste can be used as an input somewhere else. So, you know, in the United States, we do have a large problem with food waste and then also unequal access to healthy and culturally important foods. Do you see those two problems as interrelated? And it's a complex issue, but what is the best solution in your eyes? Our food system, and this is like many of our industrial systems, are built on the idea of a linear, extractive, exploitative economy, right? We extract resources from the soil you know, for growing food or mining for producing our computers and transform those into products. And it's cheap, especially here in the U.S., to discard our waste all along that supply chain, which means that the environmental costs associated with this linear extractive system are largely externalized and not paid by the producers as well as the consumers of the, the food that, that we have. Uh, so I think our economic model uh, is a primary reason why we have both high levels of ex extraction, environmental impact, waste, but also because our food system is valuing monetary gain uh, and monetary gain for those who are producers. So we, on the one hand, have food that, that is very cheap because it's not taking these ex environmental externalities into consideration. But we also have highly processed, low nutritional quality food being cheaper and easier to access than higher quality fresh food which have high, higher levels of perishability. So what's available to uh, many lower-income people are cheaper, shelf-stable, preserved food 
versus more fresh, typically higher cost uh, food. So our, our food landscape is such that we have high impacts and have high food insecurities, right? So in the U.S., it's estimated that about 38% of what we produce in the food system is wasted. And that waste happens at every point in the supply chain. So from the farms, through manufacturing, through retail, distribution, as well as in the households. Where industrial ecology and industrial symbiosis come in is mainly at the manufacturing, at the, the front-end uh, production side of it. And so the manufacturing sector is probably we have the, where we have the best utilization of byproducts, right? So there's a huge surge in not only your kind of like ugly produce, imperfect produce, so, so taking things that are cosmetically imperfect and creating a market for them, but also taking the byproducts from manufacturing activities and creating them into upcycled food products. I'm trying to remember like, like one of the, the funny things that I've seen recently. It's like the apricot skins, <laughs> something into chips. But this idea that, you know, there's good nutritional quality in, in some food items that can be preserved and converted in, into new products. And so that's where I, I see the industrial ecology kind of being applied. And again, it's more in a manufacturing setting. When we come to retail, distribution, food service, and homes, we need to make a distinction between the different qualities of food that are wasted. So much of the food that, that's wasted fall into either fresh produce, so things that are perishable, or prepared meals, uh, food that, that is cooked, prepped in some way, and, and then served. In the, the latter case, food that is, is prepared, they have to be sold by a certain time to guarantee safety and freshness. And so there's very little that, that can be done um, with it unless you're able to capture it just in time and get it to people um, who need it. The food rescue landscape uh, is very fragmented. I think we have to balance between centralized and decentralized because there, there are many initiatives that are working to, to rescue, donate, capture uh, food that is still edible and get it to people who, who need it. But better information coordination is needed to identify the, the sources when they become available, the volumes that are available, the quality, uh, to then match those with people who, who need it. So we make a distinction between kind of that food that, that is still edible and then the food that is inedible. And uh, that, that inedible food can be used to feed animals, it can be used to, to feed soil, and we can do that through digestion or through composting. Um, so looking at the different recycling pathways. So I think there are, there are a number of strategies, right? But I think better information about volumes, quality, and matching that information to the best potential uses, right? Because we also have a food waste hierarchy that we want to follow that looks at feeding people first, feeding animals second, and then recovering the nutrients and energy last of all. So we might think about developing optimization models uh, <laughs> for, for how to um, match those sources and those highly variable sources and sources of different quality with different needs uh, along the waste hierarchy. 
So what you described there was, you mentioned the linear economy in this like straight way, but what you began to describe um, and something you've written about is this circular economy, which is what we kind of describe, the, the reuse and finding new purposes. But could you kind of give a, a nice definition of the circular economy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the most used definitions of a circular economy is an economy that is restorative and regenerative by design. So the idea is how can we shift our extraction, consumption, and reuse of different resources, primarily material, physical resources, so that they can be of a highest and best value at all times. So in a linear economy, we use resources once and discard them. In a circular economy, we find multiple pathways for sharing and reuse at different points in in that that value chain, right? So if we think about what's on the farm, so food waste that, that's on the farm, oftentimes it's cost prohibitive to, to gather uh, leftover produce, but we can have gleaning um, as a way that uh, some people might be able to, to capture things that, that are still edible. But that food waste can also go to feed the soil. Right. We come to manufacturing, right? The, the reuse of some byproducts uh, aims to reduce waste that's going into the, the waste stream and develop new products, right? So we have upcycling loops happening in there. We have resource sharing as, as an approach that's used in the circular economy. So we can think about it in the, the context of food as, think, as how do we uh, reduce food that's wasted and ensuring that it's shared, that more people are, are fed by it. But we can also think about this in the context of our physical products, right? So car sharing, right? tool sharing, apartment sharing, right? Uh, all of these sharing economy ideas fit into the idea of using a resource that would otherwise be sitting unused, but if we have multiple people who are using them, then we're utilizing that resource much more effectively. Right? So it's kind of like our, our use phase. And then our end-of-life phase, we can think about reselling, remanufacturing, disassembling, pulling out components, and reusing the parts, uh, recycling components. And then at the, the very least, our lowest level, recovering the energy that was utilized to produce the, those products. So the circular economy is like uh, enables us to think about the whole value chain and add more value at each of those stages through uh, reuse, sharing, recycling opportunities. And and one more R. Uh, so so there's a, there's a framework where we think about going beyond the three R's, right? Reduce, reuse, recycle to nine R's. And I can't remember the nine R's off at the top of my head. But the first R is rethink. Uh, so rethink mm-hmm. what you actually purchase. Do you need that new sweater? <laughs> do you, you know? Do you need to purchase? And and I see this, you know, like like in the context of grocery shopping in the U.S. Right. And I, um, you know, will we'll admit I, I have a Costco membership. Right. And you go to Costco <laughs> and you buy way more stuff than you actually need. And if you have the storage, great. You can put it somewhere and, until you need it. But if you don't, that food ends up going bad in the, the fridge. So we need to rethink how much we're purchasing. Like just because, oh, buy one, get one free. Let me buy that, that extra one. When am I going to eat it? <laughs> uh, so that rethinking, I think, uh, is the, the most important R. Right? Do we need something in the first place? What you're saying about switching from linear to circular, it involves revaluing. And that's like a, from industry level and also from a personal level. But 
instigating that sort of change, how can we get people to start to revalue? Because if you go to the store and it's buy one, get one half, it, we're kind of instigated to, to, <laughs> to think that. But th- this comes from such a personal and systematic change. But how can we start to revalue those things? Yeah, I mean, we, we are conditioned through the education system, television. It's all about the stories that we hear. And uh, these are stories that we hear from our, our childhood. It's things that we see our parents doing. We see our, our neighbors doing. And so it's, you know, completely normalized to, as you said, this and on my mind is is thinking about our block party, right, that, that, that we have on, on our block. And it's completely normalized that you get a plate of food. And I'm thinking about the little kids. They have one bite of the hot dog and then toss the, <laughs> yeah, the, the rest of it. But that, that's the size of the portions that we have, right? And if we were thinking about little kids and how much they actually eat, like maybe we need to have our hot dogs be three inches long instead of <laughs> six or eight inches long. Um, so this is about changing values. Values are very conservative. They're they're hard to change. But the way that, that we begin changing them is by changing the stories about what we think is important. And there is, I think, the potential for growing social movements that reflect these differences in, in values, right? So think historically... And it's probably, you know, like your, your grandparents' uh, generation wasted nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Their values kind of coming out of the Second World War was that things are scarce, things are valuable, um, right? And I'm thinking about like my, my own grandmother wasted nothing, right? Um, like, like I'm remembering peeling potatoes with her and her saying, you know, like you're cutting too much out of the potatoes. Like <laughs> you're wasting the potatoes. So, so they were so frugal. So, so that shift is generational, right? So, so after the Second World War is when the kind of food industry and preservation and like having long shelf life became a thing, right? That's 60 years ago. And so we have our parents' um, generation, you know, growing up in, in this time of long shelf life and everything's available and everything's abundant. We have this perception that there's so much available and so we can use whatever we want and discard because there's much more available that that we can pull from. I think there are growing movements, both domestically in the U.S. and in different parts of the world, that that mindset of excess and abundance is no longer viable because of the resource limitations that we're seeing on the planet, right? So between climate change, biodiversity loss, uh, land degradation, that many people are seeing that that story of excess and abundance is no longer appropriate now. And so I have real hope uh, for young people like you who are doing things differently. Maybe 70 or 80% of your generation want to work for a company whose values are in line with what they believe, right? So sustainability, equity, and and you all, I think, already have much of this mindset, right? It's not universal, right? But the way social movements build is that there are some people who are on the leading edge, who have different ideas, uh, who can, can demonstrate a different way of being, uh, we tell stories to make those values become more normalized. 
and then we build on there. So, so a movement builds with different values being normalized. And it's not linear, right? There is back and forth, right? Like we have pushback from different legislations, from uh, different groups that, that say, no, that's not the way that, that we want to be. We want to maintain the, the old way, the old practices. And so this is uh, a tension and a fight around values. And I think we're seeing that all across the country, right now and and so so i think that there is a commitment a need for commitment but also sharing stories telling ways of of different being that the way that we've lived for the last 60 years in in the us is not sustainable and so we need a new story that aligns with the the values that that more and more of us are are seeing is needed to uh, to be in harmony, and, and and so it's sort of cyclic, right? So now we're like going back to to things that our grandparents did, our great grandparents did, and that indigenous peoples around the world have practiced for for millennia: uh, how to live more in harmony with the land and the resources that we're utilizing. When you were talking about restructuring our values and finding out like what is important and what should we prioritize, things that come to mind for me are like sustainability and equity, like you were saying, but all of those reminded me of something that I saw in your papers called the eight capitals. Could you just give a brief explanation about what that is? Yeah. So we think of capital as any resource that is capable of creating value, yeah. value to, to itself or to, to other resources. Historically, you know, this is going you know, back centuries of the first economists, right? we, we've talked about three dimensions that make an economic activity, three resource inputs that are needed. Land, labor, and capital, or money, right? So, so we have these three resources that are used to build a business, to build a, a regional, a national economy. We have our people, we have the land, or our natural resources, and, and money. So for a long time, these three are seen as, as the most important inputs. And certainly capital, by definition, is held up as the most valuable resource. There have been many movements, initiatives, philosophies that have tried to broaden how we think about these stocks of resources that we used to, to drive our economy. Right? So it's not just about money. So there are variations. There are five capitals. There are seven capitals. So, so many people think about capital in, in different ways. But it's essentially what are the resources that we need to run our economy. And we can think about this as we have a stock of these resources from which we draw from. Now, we pull from those resources to run the activities. And then those resources are either depleted or can be regenerated. And so this goes back to that circular economy idea, right? Like how can we regenerate these resources uh, over time? So in, in my work, we have identified eight, and this builds on the, the work of sociologist Cornelia Flora, uh, who identified seven capitals that are essential in a rural economy. So our eight are financial, natural, Human, right? So those, those three are the same. But we also have social capital. That's the relationships between people. We have political capital, decision-making powers. We have manufactured capital, so the things that, that we make, our equipment, our buildings, our built environment. 
We have our digital capital, uh, which includes our information, our data storage capacities, and we have cultural capital. So the norms, the conceptions, you know, think things about how we think about food, the stories that we tell, right? That's a, a sort of cultural capital. And, you know, I'll, I'll add that these are not definitive, like, like other people think about knowledge capital, right? The, make a distinction between the knowledge that we have inside of our heads versus our physical, like human physical uh, capabilities. So, so I think about capitals as, as a flexible concept, but the idea is we have many different types of resources that we're using to feed our economic activities, and we ought to value all of those. Right. So right now, we reduce all of these capitals to how much money can they make for us, right? So they're all reduced to financial capital. And this kind of multi-capital perspective says, let's think about valuing each of these things in and of themselves and then develop decision-making criteria that's reflective of these multiple types of value, uh, these multiple stocks of resources that are being created. We could also think about, you know, like in any given situation, and, and I'm going to draw the example of work that we do on the south side of Chicago, where there has been historic disinvestment of financial capital, right? And so it starts with redlining, right, in the 40s and 50s and restricting home ownership by African-Americans to particular neighborhoods, right? The lack of loans, which, you know, has caused a reduction in home ownership rates in, in certain neighborhoods. So that disinvestment of financial capital. So often, you know, like if, we, if we're looking at, at a map, we'd, we'd say, oh, there's a problem over here. And, and we see this lack of financial capital as a problem. But there are other types of assets that are present in those neighborhoods. One approach that, that's used is called an asset-based community development approach. And so that begins by identifying what are the different types of assets that are available in a community that can be leveraged for action, for economic activity, right? So you might not have the financial resources, but you might have labor resources. You might have a strong social capital. People know each other. So how can we leverage those different stocks of resources and assets to activate economic activities? So it's kind of the perspective, right? So it is about changing the like what we value and recognizing that our culture has value, right? Our political decision-making processes, our relationships, as well as people themselves. Thinking about what's important to us and what we value in life is a great way to round out this episode. And I was just wondering, Dr. Ashton, do you have any last words or pieces of advice for our listeners? For your listeners who might be at the beginning of, of their careers, I'd encourage you that as you go into working with organizations, you know, working in different communities in different parts of the country, that it's really important to understand what's there, who's doing what, and build relationships. Right? And, and that, I think, is a big part of the shifting of values because like, we, are, we are so oriented towards transactions, right? I need to get this done. Oh, what do I need to, to give to get this, this done? So it's very transactional. And I think the shift in values requires a more relational approach. Uh, so building 
relationships with people within the organizations that, that you might go to work, uh, within the communities or places where you might be working, and whether it's a, a single project or multiple projects, that relationship building and understanding of what assets are available that can be activated rather than, than thinking about, okay, there's a problem that needs to be solved. What are the tools that I can bring in to, to solve it, but recognize what's being done currently in order to, to leverage what's, what's there. I think there are many opportunities, I mean, more and more opportunities for you all and not only younger people, but, you know, um, older more mature folks as well, <laughs> to to live your values, right? To rethink your purchases, reduce what you're consuming, and think about how your personal activities can contribute to a more circular, a more sustainable, a more equitable system, right? So, so I think it, it starts by questioning your role. Like we often are told that we're consumers. I would encourage us to think about ourselves as citizens before we're consumers. So we have a more active role in decision-making processes and can, yeah, practice that, that rethinking and even having a more active role in redesigning what we're doing. And I think that this is something that we can practice within our individual homes and, and households, as well as in the organizations where we might work or volunteer or spend our time. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Dr. Ashton. I really enjoyed our conversation. And listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. Ashton and her amazing work and more about her keynote speech at the Sustainability Symposium, you can visit the Office of Sustainability website at sustainability.wisc.edu. And thank you for listening to the Sustain UW podcast. Thanks to the Director of Sustainability at UW-Madison, Dr. Missy Nurgard, and to the Director of Sustainability Education and Research, Professor Andrea Hicks. Thanks also to the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and to Facilities Planning and Management for supporting this podcast. The making of these episodes requires a lot of behind-the-scenes work from the entire intern podcast team, and we are so grateful for their efforts. Until next time, continue thinking about how to best sustain UW.